Uh, we're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 6 this morning and 7. Um, 2 Kings 6 and 7. You can make your way there in your Bible. Uh, we'll be looking at all of chapter 7 and just the last half of chapter 6. And if the sound goes down, I will just do what Steve did and keep preaching. And if you can't hear me, know that what I said would have been insightful. (laughs) Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into God's Word together. Lord, what a privilege it is to be with your people on your day. Um, It brings us joy. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for Pastor Steve and his uh, decade more... um, of faithfulness, laboring here in, in Bakersfield, and just the joy he has. I think of the joy he has as he's talked about the church that he loves so much and that loves him, and what a joyful place this is uh, today. Um, we're thankful for the, the resurrection, that you have opened up the grave and ascended into heaven, and we're thankful that, in a sense, your body, meaning the church, is still here on earth, and so we long for the day we'll be reunited um, with you in heaven. But in the meantime, we're thankful for the joy that we have in a, in a place like this. We're grateful for the love of Christ you've written in our hearts, and we pray now that it would be uh, more alive for us this morning as we're conformed into the image of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Mount Jado Pass is the name of a particularly treacherous pass in the Alps between Switzerland and Italy. For centuries... Uh, People died, thousands of people died trying to cross that pass in the winter. When a snowstorm would unpredictably arise, there would be a whiteout, and with no way to stay on course, travelers would get lost and freeze to death. This was in a world without the weather channel. This was in a world without weather alerts. I mentioned my iPad gives me text messages. It also gives me weather alerts, and this morning it kept making me think that we're not going to survive this day. (laughs) And... You know, in the world without the Weather Channel, in a world without weather alerts, you could be at the base of the Mount Judo Pass and look up it, and it would be clear skies, and you would think that you would go for it, but then you ascend the top only to be met with a blizzard. As I mentioned, it was the way that, uh, only way to get between Italy and Switzerland. And so people would have to do it to get out if they needed to go between the countries. And as I mentioned, scores and scores of people died from it. But suddenly in the 1700s, that all changed. In the 1700s, the death rate declined drastically, and the reason was not due to any kind of fancy weather Doppler radar or any kind of you know, paved roads or anything. The reason was due to one thing and one thing only. It was due to a dog, a whole bunch of dogs, actually. It was a breed that had been bred by the monks at the base of the, the uh, pass. This breed, they bred them with an uncanny aptitude for navigating the blinding fog, an incredible stamina for below freezing temperatures, and an almost mythical ability to find freezing people in the snow. By this time in history, the pass itself had been named for the monastery, which was founded by St. Bernard of Mangeau, and so naturally the dogs were also canonized as St. Bernard's. They patrolled that icy pass for 200 years. It is estimated that in their 200 years uh, of a work there that they saved over 2,000 people from the frostbitten clutches of an icy death. When the saint found a lost soul, that was only half of his work. He would have to sniff him out, find him, grab him, and then drag him out of the ice. And then the saint would deliver 
a life-saving supply of whiskey and bread that they carried in the barrels that are around their necks is so often pictured in the arts of them uh, doing their work. And then second, they would lead the traveler back to the monastery. That was kind of a, a one-two punch, deliver and lead. You would find the lost soul, pull him out of the ice, deliver him food, and lead him back to safety. Deliver and lead. If you remember those two words, you'll get the point of this message. Deliver and lead. I want to walk you through this morning this uh, narrative that begins in the second part of chapter 6 of 2 Kings. And I've titled this How to Be a Rescuer of Lost Souls. So if you're taking an outline, that would be your heading, How to Be a Rescuer of Lost Souls. In this narrative, we're going to see God's word revealed. We're going to see God's word believed. And we're going to see God's word shared. In 2 Kings chapter 6, this is the low point of Israel's history. Ahab, wicked, villainous King Ahab was on the throne and uh, was, was a terrible king and was opposed to God and to God's people. He was at war with Syria and those around him. It was a uh, dreadful time to be alive and God was punishing them. Uh, God was punishing the Israelites for their, um, for their sin. They were believing in the rain God and so God ironically wouldn't send them rain. And like a guy who makes a wrong turn and refuses to turn around, the more the Israelites believed in the rain God, the less rain they got. And it's almost like you reach the pa- the past the point of no return where you think, you know, if the world is round, I made a round turn, I'll get there eventually. This is the way the Israelites were with the rain God. They thought the more they worshipped Baal, eventually he would have to relent and give them rain. This is like a non-falsifiable theory, because if there's not getting rain, they interpreted that as we're just not worshiping him strongly enough. And so they were in a drought. Beyond the drought, they were under siege from the Syrians, and they blamed Elijah for all of this. Elisha was the uh, prophet who had a chance to destroy the Syrian army. They had camped out outside of his house to ambush him. If you remember the story earlier in Two Kings, the uh, soldiers were there to ambush him when he took the trash can out in the morning or something like that. And, and he saw them. He perceived them hiding. You can't ambush a prophet, really, is the right takeaway from this. And so the Lord blinded the soldiers. And then Elisha led them all the way back to the capital, to Samaria, which was a difficult city to find. But he led them right there. He brought them into the city. And the king uh, said, you know, let's, let's execute them. These are our enemies. Let's kill them. And Elisha said, no, it's not right to slaughter your enemies if God has delivered them into your care. And so instead, Elisha prepared for them a Thanksgiving dinner. He made a feast for them and fed them and then sent them on their way. It's not long after that when they showed up here and put Samaria under siege. People blamed Elisha for this. They blamed Yahweh for this, for not giving them rain. If only they had food, then they could have the sustenance to fight back against the Syrians. And so this is a desperate, desperate time. You see this in verse 24 of chapter 6. Afterwards, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, mustered his entire army. Remember, Ben-Hadad was the, the one who was appointed by Elijah, the prophet before Elisha, to go to war against Israel. This is God's punishment in Israel. There was a great famine, it says in verse 25, in Samaria, and the the Syrians besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. I'll spare you the conversion rate on the money, but I've never eaten donkey that I know of. (laughs) I don't want to overclaim anything. But I would imagine the donkey's head would be the last part you would eat. 
And this is the part that is, is for sale. In other words, they are so desperate. The donkey's head is going for an outrageous price, 80 shekels of silver. And the fourth part of a cob of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. So uh, a cob here is like, I don't know, like a, one of those Coke Zero bottles, that kind of thing. That's what a cob is. And they would fill it with dove's dung. And why? that's an odd little price point right there. You know, we measure inflation with like the cost of rent and the cost of cars and the cost of bread. They used dove's dung, apparently. And that's because doves were not inhibited by the famine. They have wings. They're not inhibited by the, the siege. They can fly over to the, the Jordan River and they can find food there and they can fly back to wherever their, their nest is. It's not that far away from Samaria. They can go to both enemy camps. The Syrians have food. The doves can fly into the Syrian camp, eat the Syrian food and the Syrian garbage and fly back and perch on the walls of Samaria because that's what doves do. And now you've got Israelites following around the doves, little cups catching their dung to eat that. I don't recommend that either. <laughs> but the point is, the famine is serious and severe. Verse 26, the king of Israel was passing by on the wall. And a woman cried out to him, saying, help, my lord, O king. So the walls, remember, had houses in them and the kings could patrol on the wall. He's probably walking by with his royal robes on and, you know, establishing, surveying the Syrian army on the horizon and demonstrating to the Israelites that he's in charge, he's in control. This woman comes up to him and cries for help. And he said, if the Yahweh will not help you, how am I going to help you? From the threshing floor? Or from the wine press, a very sarcastic response. The king says, you want help? Why don't you try praying? He does not really mean that. He means, he means it kind of as a sarcastic expression. If God could help you, then you should go to him. If he can't help you, what do you think I will do? Also, where do you want help from? You want it from my threshing floor? You want it from my wine press? In other words, uh, you want the extra food I have? Do you want it from my, my wine cellar? He doesn't have any food either. How do you want me to help you? And the king, perhaps realizing other people are listening, speaks to her more compassionately and says, what is your trouble in verse 28? She answered, this woman said to me, give me your son, so we can eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give me your son, so we can eat him. But she has hidden her son. Now, this is probably the most desperate famine seen in the Old Testament. And that's saying something. There's a lot of famines in the Old Testament, but there's really nothing that compares to this. This devastates the king. The wicked rain god-worshipping king is cut to his heart with grief about this. His own inability to rescue his people is exposed. How do you even answer this? I and mean, what's, what's justice in this? No, bring her son so you can eat him too? I mean, there's no right answer to this. It's, a, it's just depravity. Verse 30, the king heard the words of the woman. He tore his clothes. And he was passing by on the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. Sackcloth is uh, not comfortable to wear. It scratches your skin. It was something that people would wear to demonstrate mourning or to demonstrate sincerity to God. Uh, you see this in some you know, religion today where people harm themselves as they're, they're praying. I used to live in Mexico City and you would see people take the metro to the Basilica, the big Catholic church there, get off of it and crawl on their hands and knees. They put cactus needles in their hands and their knees and they would crawl to go pray. And it was a way of demonstrating to God how serious they were for their prayer request. In other words, they're so desperate, they will cut themselves and bleed 
feet on the ground in order to get to a point of praying. It was to help God realize, like, I really do need help. This is the way sackcloth would sometimes function in the Old Testament. They would wear sackcloth. It would aggravate their body and remind them to pray to God. And it was a way of demonstrating to God that they were desperate. Now, a lot of times people would wear sackcloth hypocritically. They'd wear it on the outside of their clothes so everybody could see how desperate and needy they were. That was the point of it. That's not what this king is doing. He had it under his royal robe. So when people see this, this is a massive sign of desperation. The king wasn't doing this for show. He had it hidden. When he hears the woman's story, he rips his robes. You see his sackcloth. This would devastate the people who are there. Imagine turning on CNN and, you know, hearing some bad news and here comes the president and the camera's going to cut to the president to let us know how bad it really is. And you see him, you know, mourning. You see him wearing sackcloth. You see him saying, oh, it's all over. Why even bother? That would not instill confidence in the people. That's what they see here with the king. Desperate. Desperation. People looked and behold, they saw the sackcloth in verse 31. The king said, may God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. So the king is angry now at Elisha and says, may God do so more so to me. Do what to him? May, may God boil him and eat him, I guess, is the antecedent. May God destroy his life if Elisha is still alive in 24 hours. Why is he angry at Elisha? Elisha has nothing to do with this. He's not here. He's angry at Elisha because Elisha had led the Syrians to the capital. He's angry at Elisha because Elisha is a prophet. He blames God for this, of course, but you can't cut off God's head. You can cut off Elisha's head. That's his logic. He would lash out at Yahweh if he could, but he can't get his hands around Yahweh's neck. He can get his hands around Elisha's neck. This is not high theology right here. This is, and you have probably had encounters like this in your own life where people are angry at you because you're a Christian, not because you did anything at all to them, but because they're angry at God. And, you know, but you're, the, you're God's closest representative. You say, I didn't do anything. Yeah, but you know God, and this bad thing is happening to me, and your God could stop it. You almost want to reason with the person. Like, you mean my God that you don't believe in could stop the problem you're going through, and so you're mad at me for my God that you don't believe in not doing something. The whole thing doesn't make any sense. But that is honestly the way a lot of non-believers respond in trials, to get angry at a God that they don't even believe in. And so they're angry at you because you do believe in him. And there you go. This is the king's attitude. He's mad at Elisha because Elisha believes in Yahweh and he wants to cut off his head. Verse 32, in contrast... Elisha, you picture the camera changing scenes. Elisha's not pacing around the wall. He's not wearing sackcloth. Elisha's sitting in his house. I picture him sitting in his favorite recliner, sipping iced tea, petting his cat. I know the Jews probably wouldn't have been petting cats, but come on. The king had dispatched a man, and he had, by the way, in verse 32, as the elders there sitting with him. In other words, Elisha's own leadership, his friends are all there. They're just relaxing. They're not panicking. They're not pacing. They're confident in God and God's goodness towards them. The king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger had arrived, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? So again, you cannot ambush a prophet. They should have learned that earlier in 2 Kings. You can't sneak up on Elisha. He hears you. He knows you're coming. The whole point of this is he's a prophet. He, you can't surprise him. So he tells his friends, look, this murderer, speaking of the king, is coming to chop off my head. 
Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Isn't the sound of his master's feet behind him? So the king tells his commander of the guard, the, you know, the head, the joint chief of staff chair, like the head military guy, says, go get Elisha's head. He sends off the sergeant. The sergeant's running down the, the street. The sergeant busts in the door and, you know, <laughs> I picture him bursting through the door and the elders just closing it behind him. He's like, aha. Oh, <laughs> Now I'm stuck. <laughs> they have him sit down, give him an iced tea. And then he says, wait, his, his commander's coming behind him. The head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he's coming as well. Well, he's still speaking with them. The messenger came down to him and said, this trouble is from Yahweh. Why should I wait for Yahweh any longer? That's the complaints of these military leaders, the messenger and the captain. They're saying, this is God's, this is God's doing. What are you doing, Elisha? You're just sitting here waiting. It's God who's doing this. Why are you waiting on him to help? That is classic non-believer logic. The believer looks at this and says, okay, if it's God who's punishing you for your sin, I have an idea. Repent. Like, try that. You've tried everything else. You're eating each other. You're chasing doves around with cups. How about repenting from your sin? Let's try that. But no, that's the one thing they won't do. They will not humble themselves and come before the Lord. They're angry at God. They're angry at God's messengers. But they will not repent. The point of this paragraph in chapter 6 is to show you how desperate of a situation they are in. This situation represents unbelief in the world. This is the fruit of unbelief. It is anger. It is frustration. It is mourning. It is murder, it is depravity, it is not having what you need, having no confidence, not even bother praying because you know the Lord won't hear you. That is the condition of unbelief. What you're going to see in chapter 7 is how to be a rescuer of lost souls, how to get people out of that situation. That situation that's described in chapter 6 is not a one-to-one correspondence with our world today, but it certainly represents people in our world today just fine. It's not exactly like this, but it's very similar. People who are lost in their sin, they're lost in their depravity. They don't feel like they can pray. When they do pray, God doesn't hear their prayers. They have not because they ask not. And when they ask, they don't get their prayers answered because they want to spend it on their own selfish gain. So God withholds it from them. They throw themselves headlong into idolatry and depravity and sexual immorality. And then they get mad at Christians for calling them out. All they have in this world is their immorality. And Christians call them out as being sinners, so they get angry at Christians, and that's just the situation right here. But Christians aren't called to give up on this. As we talked about the last two days, you're not called to look for a political solution to this. What you're called to do in these circumstances is to be a rescuer of lost souls. How? Well, the first way is you have to know God's word. The first way to be a rescuer of lost souls is you have to know God's word. The great siege of Samaria is continuing here. They've got Elisha cordoned off in his room here, and Elisha speaks to them. In verse 1, Elisha says, Hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, Tomorrow at this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel. A shekel? That's one eightieth of a donkey's head. You get a whole thing of flour. You can get 80 things to flour for the price of one donkey head. And two sayas of barley. 160 donkey's heads for a shekel. You get flour and wheat. 
and they'll be all for sale at the gate of Samaria. It's like Walmart opens up right there. Cheap flour, cheap barley, all for sale tomorrow. That's what Elisha says. This explains why Elisha has confidence sitting in his room. He knows the word of the Lord. This is why he begins in chapter 7, verse 1, with an imperative. Here, it's imperative. Hear the word of the Lord, or listen to the word of the Lord, your translation might say. You can't believe God's word. You can't share God's word if you don't first know God's word. You can't give people the good news to rescue them from their own sin if you don't know the word of God and what it says about their sin. The first component, this seems so obvious, it's almost not even worth stating, but It just has to be stated. In order to be an effective evangelist, you have to know the word of God. In order to tell somebody how to be rescued from their sin, you have to know what the Bible says about how to be rescued from their sin. This is the St. Bernard. In order to rescue the dude, you got to find the person first. You have to know where they are and you have to know how to get them out. You have to know what the word of the Lord says. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, of course I know what the word of God says. Of course I do. I went to Awana. Do you guys have Awana here? (laughs) I went to Awana. I went to youth group. Of course I know what the Word of God says. I have pictures of me in the Awana vest and everything. I know the Word of God. Really? Do you know the Word of God well enough to bring it to bear on life situations? On real life situations? Do you know what the Word of God says about the common scenarios you're confronted with in our American culture? Do you know what the Word of God says about evolution? Do you know what the Word of God says about homosexuality? Do you know what the Word of God says about cheating in school? Do you know what the Word of God says about marriage? Do you know what the Word of God says about materialism? I think the big picture issues that you engage with all the time in our culture, do you know what the Word of God actually says about them? What passages give comfort to people who are sick? We're suffering with cancer. What passages bring conviction to the sinner's heart? The sinner who says, I don't believe in God because he doesn't answer my prayers. What passages would speak to that situation? What about the weird cults and the false gospel preachers around here? Somebody who says, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe he was God. Where does the Bible say that? You're talking to the, the Roman Catholic who says, Jesus doesn't have brothers or sisters, the perpetual virginity of Mary and all that. What passage of the Bible would you have to go to that show that Jesus did have brothers and sisters? What passages would you go to to talk about Mary? What passages would you go to that show how Jesus' death was predicted in the Old Testament or someone who says, I'm a Christian, uh, but I don't believe in hell. What passages would you go to to talk about that? Those are kind of the normal evangelistic, those ones I'm just coming up with off my head. Those are the normal evangelistic conversations that we often have in our society are about those issues. And it's worth asking yourself, do you know what the word of God actually says about those issues? Because you can't convince somebody the word of God says they're wrong if you don't know where in this book to open to and what to say from it. And that doesn't mean you need to go to seminary or you need to go to Bible college. That just means you need to have a Bible and you need to know it. My favorite people in the Bible is Apollos because Luke describes him as someone who is mighty in the scriptures. Isn't that a cool way to be known? Oh, Apollos? You mean that guy who's mighty in the scriptures? Yeah, that's all you need on your gravestone. Here lies Apollos, mighty in the scriptures. Could that describe you? It's not out of reach. I mean, the Bible is written. It has an ocean of truth in it, but it's written so you can drink it from a sippy cup. I mean, you can drink it a a verse at a time, a passage at a time. And over time, as you're reading it, it's filling out your thinking and it's filling out your mind and it's giving you conviction so that you can truly say that you know the word of God. 
Don't use your quiet time as just you know, a thing to cross off the list, but view your devotional life, your quiet time, your time in God's Word as a way to feed your soul so that you learn the Word of God, so that you can know it, so you can bring it to bear on situations. It was Martin Luther who said, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And I pray that you have that attitude towards the Bible. When you, the book that you have in your hand or on your phone, that when you open it up and you have it speaking to you, you recognize it's the voice of God telling you and teaching you what to think about the world that you're in. If you don't know the Bible well enough to answer those questions, what the ones I said were what the Bible says about evolution, homosexuality, materialism, cheating in school, adultery, marriage, those kind of big picture things. If, you, if you're hearing that and you're like, I don't know what passage to talk about those. Well, don't give up. Make a little list. Write those things down and get to work. Use a concordance. Use, don't tell Pastor Steve I said this. Use Google. What does the Bible say about evolution? Question mark. I bet you'll actually get some halfway decent answers. And if you don't tell Pastor Steve to write an article that Google will then tag and fix the problem. Read the Bible devotionally and know what to ask the word and know how to get answers. Being a Bible major shouldn't be a prerequisite for knowing the Bible. Every Christian should be a Bible major in that sense. I remember when I was in high school, I read A Tale of Two Cities and hated that book. I made it like 50 pages through it and then tapped out and got the, the Cliff Notes, the modern-day Wikipedia, and bluffed my way through the test and somehow graduated high school and everything. And then I get to college, and it was like a sophomore in college, and I was assigned that book again. Oh, the crimes. <laughs> and I read it the second time, and I got hooked I, it was one of the first books where I, that I read. I remember staying up all night to finish that book. And at the end of the book, I won't give you any spoilers, but at the end of the book, I felt like I died. At the end of the book, I was like, oh my goodness, life is never the same. Woe is me. What a precious book this thing was. And what changed in those few years? I mean, the book didn't change. It was just my attitude towards it. Maybe I had enough experience in the world where I had ears to hear it now and I could relate to the characters better. I have no idea. Maybe it's just maturity. But I got to the point where I could actually enjoy it now and I wanted to read it. And that should be the attitude of the Christian towards the Bible, where you engage with it as a book that you know and you love and you're excited to approach it and it's giving you the knowledge that you can know to bring to the lost world. So the first way to be a rescuer of lost souls is to know God's word. The second way to be a rescuer of lost souls is to believe God's word. Believe God's word. Chapter 7, verse 2. The captain on whose hand the king leans, in other words, the top military officer here, the commander, says to the man of God, Elisha, if Yahweh himself would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? That's pretty sarcastic. If Yahweh opened up a window of heaven and backed a dump truck of wheat and flour to it and just opened it up, if God ripped a hole in the roof of this church, which is seeming more likely every passing second right now, <laughs> and just dumped flour and dumped barley into it, you still couldn't have prices that low. That's what the guy says. There's no conceivable way to move that much volume to get prices to go down that low. It's not even possible. That's what he says. It's not possible. He heard God's word. He had the prophet telling him. He, in fact, remember what produced this is he told the prophet, how can you just sit there when it's God who's doing this? And so the prophet says, fine, I'll tell you what God's going to do. He's going to bring all the prices down tomorrow. Now, I don't believe you. You're angry at God for not doing it. And then when the prophet says God's going to do it, you get angry at him also. You can know the Bible. You can know the word of God. 
and not believe it. That's the point of this guy. He knew what the word of God said. He knew it. He didn't believe it. It reminds me in the sense of the, the Pharisees. Remember when the Magi come to Jerusalem and they go to Herod's palace and they, they are asking Herod the Great, uh, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And Herod's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he brings the, the religious leaders in and they say, oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, third door on the left. See ya. And they knew what the word of God said. They just didn't believe it. They didn't care about it. They knew where Jesus was. They knew who he was. They didn't care. That's the same attitude here. The captain knows what God's word says. He just chooses not to believe it. This is the point that Christians can't skip over. We're called to know God's word, but we're also called to believe it. And I know what you're thinking about this one too. You're saying, okay, on the first one, I could do a better job knowing the word of God. But you should know this. I'm a believer. That means that I believe the word. I'm in. Believers believe, right? Dogs bark, cats meow, believers believe. But if you disbelieve the Bible at a single point, that makes you an unbeliever. The nature of belief is believing the word of God. And so often Christians excuse things in the word of God. They excuse their own unbelief by saying, I believe a lot of the Bible. I believe most of the Bible, just not this part or that part or the other part. Believers are called to believe every word of God's word. I remember the story of W.A. Criswell, pastor of First Baptist Dallas, that his first Sunday there, he stands up in front of the church and he asks if people believe the Bible and everybody says, amen, you know, and then he says, uh, do you believe the creation account that God created the world in six days? I know many of you don't believe that. Some of our elders don't believe that. And he rips out the first few pages of the Bible. Then he goes to the flood and says, do you guys all believe there was a, a global flood where God drowned the world? And then he rips out the flood narrative and he keeps working through the Bible, ripping out all kinds of things in the Bible. And at the end of it, he holds up just a tattered Bible with holes in it. And he says, my job as a pastor is to give you your whole Bible back. <laughs> oh, man, that'll preach. <laughs> so often people say, I know God's word. I believe most of God's word, but that doesn't mean I need to believe this, that, or the other thing. That doesn't mean I need to believe about creation or I need to believe about the flood. That doesn't mean I need to believe about what the Bible teaches about marriage or, or this or the other thing. People always make excuses. They say things like, oh, the Genesis 1 creation account, details aren't important. The big picture is that God made the world and let's just move on. That may be the big picture, but that's not the full picture. The point is that every topic the Bible speaks on, it speaks on with precision and in a way that compels belief. I'm a believer. Believers believe. What if I told you I'm a skier? I have skis. I have the jacket. I even bought a lift ticket. They're all comfortably in my garage. (laughs) Does that make me a skier? No, it doesn't make me a skier. Having skis in your garage does not make you a skier. Having a Bible in your lap and being at church on Sunday doesn't make you a believer. You're missing a key component. Yes, believers have Bibles, and yes, they're in church on Sunday, but that doesn't make them a believer. What makes them a believer is exercising faith and believing the Word of God. This captain says, if even the Lord could make a drive a window in heaven, I still wouldn't believe it. He, this is the picture of elevating your limited reason above the word of God. This is the perfect picture of somebody saying, I can't figure out how God would do that. I can't figure out how a flood could actually cover the whole earth with, you know, a circular and all the animals in the ark and, you know, two by two and use the volume of the ark and blah, blah, blah. I ran the numbers and I can't figure it out. You have little tiny slivers of reason. 
and you're elevating your little slivers of reason over the word of God. That's exactly what this captain is doing. I've studied supply and demand. I studied what it makes to produce wheat and flour and barley and all that, and it's not going to happen. Well, all right. (laughs) Look how Elisha responds. You shall see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat of it. A little bit of a riddle, isn't it? Ha, ha, ha. Riddle me this, Captain. What will you see but not taste? Well, he's going to find out by the end of the chapter. I'll tell you that right now. This won't be a long suspense. Verse 3. There are four men who were lepers at the entrance of the gate. Lepers are bad news bearers. Lepers are, they're, you know, the skins are corroding. It's a contagious disease. They walk around. They have to shout, unclean, unclean, unclean. You can't touch a leper. A leper can't touch you. If a leper touches you, you'll figure out a way to kill the leper without touching him. You, nobody wants to be around a leper. A leper touches your little wall. You have to stay out of your house for seven days. I mean, you do not mess with lepers. Here's lepers outside the city. Of course, that's where you would expect to find them. They're dying because of the famine as well. They can't get in the city because of their leperness, and they can't get away because of the siege. They don't have food. That's their situation. So verse 3, they're hanging out at the city gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let's enter the city, the famine's in the city, and we'll die there. All right, that makes sense, right? If we sit here, we'll also die. So now, come on, let's go over to the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we'll live, and if they kill us, we'll only die. That's leper logic right there. (laughs) Leper logic. If we go this way, we die. If we stay here, we die. If we go there, we'll likely die. But we have a chance. (laughs) So they're going to head out to the Syrians. And they do this. Uh, In verse uh, 5, they arose at twilight, nighttime. Why at nighttime? Well, because maybe their leprosy will be obscured in the darkness. The Syrians won't know. They go at nighttime. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold... There was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of the chariots and of the horses and the sound of a great army. So they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites, the kings of the Egyptians to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, donkeys again, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. Now that's just good writing, by the way. A lesser writer would have started with, by the way, the Syrians ran away. But no, not the, the Bibles. The, the author of, of Two Kings here, he starts with the lepers. He's going to carry this whole narrative through the lepers. This is, just admire the writing. I know it's not the main point, but it is really good writing, okay? Anyway, the Syrians are gone. They're out of there. The, the lepers don't know that it was the Lord who did this. They, they don't know why this happened. They don't know the Lord gave some kind of uh, audio illusion to them where they thought there were footprints and they thought they were being ambushed from all their sides. The lepers don't know that. But verse 8 says, The lepers came to the edge of the camp. They went to a tent. They ate and drank and carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. They must have thought they won the lottery. Remember, they're going to sneak in and try to hide their leprosy, thinking 95% chance they kill us. But 5% chance we get, you know, a Coke first. And they come into a tent and it's like a Thanksgiving dinner is set up and there's piles of gold and silver and food everywhere and nobody. Wow, we chose the right tent. So they eat and they start hiding the treasure. That's how they roll. Then, middle of verse 8. They came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. So they're going tent to tent here, getting rich and fat. This is the best day ever for a leper. And they said to one another, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we're silent and wait until the morning light, 
punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city. And they said, we came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied, the donkeys tied, the tents as they were. And they come and they say, you know, that everything is gone. This is the third, before you read any further, this is the third point. You have to share God's word. You have to know God's word, believe God's word, and share God's word. And that's what these people are doing. They go back and they, again, engage in leper logic. They say, it's not right for us to be quiet. We've got to go tell people. So they go back. They had a couple meals now. They have their gold and their silver. And they remember everybody's dying in the city. It's so easy to forget that point, isn't it? It seems like they forgot at the first two houses. There, there's people dying in there. It's so often so easy for Christians to forget that point. We get so sidetracked about internal things, about church things, which are important. I'm not saying they're not important. They are important. You need to recognize deacons. You need to recognize elders. You need to make motions and, and do youth ministry. Like those things have to happen. I get that. But so often our hearts can get so drawn to the Lord's, we forget that on the other side of the fence, everybody is dying. And that's the situation lepers are in. They're, they're eating and they're like, wait a minute, they're all dying over there. Somebody go tell them. And so they go and they pick up the phone on the wall. I don't know what it was actually like, but they pick the phone up the wall and call the operator and say, hey, this is where the story kicks in here. Uh, in verse 10, they called the gatekeepers of the city and said, we've come to the camp of the Syrians. Behold, no one was to be seen or heard there. Nothing about the horses tied, the donkeys tied, the tents as they were. Imagine being like the 911 operator who gets that call. You know, Hi, we're lepers. Everybody that's putting you under siege has left. Okay, bye. <laughs> so they promote it through the chain of command here. The gatekeepers called out. It was told in the king's household. They're like, do we have to wake up the captain? Yes, wake up the captain. So they finally wake up the king, and they tell the king, and they tell all the king's servants. The king doesn't believe it. He says, I'll tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know we're hungry, so they've gone out themselves into the, and hid themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we'll take them alive and get in the city. So the king thinks it's a trap, which isn't unreasonable, I guess, but that's what the king thinks. One of his servants says, let the men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here are you know, going to die like everybody else in Israel has already died. Let's send those five horses out and see. So leper logic is apparently contagious because they're doing it here too. Let's go find out. If it's a trick, the worst thing they do is kill us, which is what's going to happen tomorrow anyway. All right, take five horses, they say. So verse 14, they took two horsemen. So apparently the king wasn't even fully aware that three of the horses had been eaten at this point is, is the point. He thought he had five horses. He dispatches five horses, only two make it out of the city. They took two horsemen. The king sent them away after the army of the Syrians saying, go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan River. Behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. It was like a massive yard sale all the way from Samaria to the river. And the messengers returned and told the king. This is classic. This is exactly how Yahweh often produces deliverance and victory. There's no military conflict here. There's no soldiers to come and attack. It's four lepers who received good news and shared it, and that brings deliverance. It is so much like classic Yahweh to use unclean lepers and nameless servants to provide miraculous deliverance, and it is a deliverance that needs people to proclaim it. Well, finish the narrative first. Verse 16, the people went and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So each of the flour was sold for a shekel, two sayas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of Yahweh, exactly what Elisha had said. 
The king had appointed the captain on his hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. So this is a very uh, prestigious thing. There's food outside. They've confirmed there's food outside. So you're letting your right-hand man be the one who opens the gate. That would be a sign of honor to him. He gets to open the gate. So he does it. But in the middle of the verse, the people trampled him at the gate so that he died, just as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. And it repeats the prophecy in verse 18. The man of God had told the king to say as a barley will be sold for shekel, say a fine flour for shekel, this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria. The captain had answered the man of God, if Yahweh himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And the man of God said, you'll see it, but you won't taste of it. And so it happened to him. The people trampled him in the gate and he died. That's the riddle. I told you. You knew the word of God. You didn't believe the word of God and it was fulfilled anyway. Whether or not you believe the word of God doesn't keep it from coming true. Your belief does not make it come true. The word of God is always true. The main point I want to draw your attention to though in my remaining time this morning is verse nine. The lepers say, we are not doing right. They make it a moral issue. They make it a moral issue. We are not doing right, they said. They knew they had a moral obligation to speak God's word. This is true for you. If you know the word of God and you believe the word of God, you have a moral obligation to share the word of God. Not share like you share a piece of pie, but share like you share life-giving food. So often we excuse our silence by saying, I'm keeping my opinions humbly to myself. But the principle is obvious. If you know the word of God, you have a moral obligation to share the word of God. You have a responsibility to share what you know about God's word with people who don't believe it. That's why they're called unbelievers. They don't believe the word of God. Your responsibility to them is to share the word of God. This is Romans 10 verse 11. How can people call on the name of the Lord if they don't believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they don't hear of them? This is Romans 10 where it's like the most basic part of salvation. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can the person outside the fence call on God's name if he doesn't even know who God is? If he doesn't know. I remember taking my kid to a park uh, in Virginia, of all places, and we're pushing him on the swing, and this was on uh, the Saturday before Easter. And there's another parent next to us pushing on the swing, and, and we're just talking as, as one does in a park with little kids. And he asked if I, what I was doing this weekend. I said, I'm going to church tomorrow's Easter. And he said, what's Easter? And my, I was like, what's Easter? (laughs) Wow. I was was engaging with that question on like 50 different levels right there. That's amazing. There are people that don't know what Easter is. And if you don't know what Easter is, guess what else you don't know? That Jesus rose from the grave. And guess what else you don't know? You can have your sins forgiven. And guess what else you don't know? That Jesus died bearing the wrath of God for your sins. You don't know any of that. Think of the people you work with at work. You know, they come in and they're, they're bad parents. They complain about their kids. They're bad husbands. They complain about their, their wife. Their life is falling apart. They're stealing from work. They're letting their kids get away with murder at school. And, they, and you get frustrated with them. Like, that person does that. I, it's crime that that person's allowed to raise kids because that's going terribly over there. Well, how would you expect it to go? How's he going to know how to love his family unless somebody tells him? How's he going to know how to raise his kids unless somebody tells him what the word of God says, pointing him to Christ? I mean, how is he going to know that he shouldn't be stealing from work unless he's confronted with the word of God? That doesn't mean he's going to believe what you tell him. Probably he won't. Probably he won't. 
That's fine. Uh, do you think the lepers cared if the operator believed their report? I mean, you can almost picture the conversation, can't you? By the way, the Syrians are gone and there's all kinds of food, gold and silver. We're letting you know to assuage your conscience. If you don't believe it, that's fine. No, no, you, I don't need to leave a number. You don't need to call me back. If you need me, I'll be gathering gold and silver. Okay, <laughs> bye. <laughs> I mean, you're almost hoping they don't believe. It's more for you. <laughs> that's very selfish and greedy, I know. But they're lepers, okay? <laughs> this is Ezekiel chapter 3. Right, that's Romans 10. Ezekiel chapter 3 is where Paul says, uh, where uh, Ezekiel says, through Yahweh says to Ezekiel, if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, and you don't speak or warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that wicked person will die for his sin. But his blood I will require from your hand. If you warn the wicked person, he doesn't turn from his ways. Okay. You've done your job. You have delivered your soul. That's the basic principle right there. You pull the fire alarm, if they don't get out of the building, that's on them. But if you know the building's on fire and you don't pull the fire alarm and they don't get out, it's on you. And you think, yeah, but they wouldn't have got out anyway. There's false alarms all the time. They wouldn't listen to them. That's not up to you to decide. Your moral duty is to discharge the warning system and to announce to people that God is appointed a day or he will judge the living and the dead. That all who die will stand before him for judgment. And there's only one way to escape judgment. And that's through placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Who died in his own body bearing the penalty for your sins. So the wrath of God that is for your sin was poured out on Jesus who died in your place. And he rose from the grave on the third day. Ascends to heaven. And he welcomes all those who place their faith in him. That is the only way by which you can be saved from sin. You can believe it or not believe it. But it's still true. And if you don't believe it... You will stand before God and and have to give account for your own sin. If you do believe it, your sin is taken away. Your life can be changed and the word of God will show you how to live. When you do that, you've discharged your duty. The lepers understood it's not right to stay quiet. Some people sanctify their selfishness because they say things like, oh, I believe in election. God's going to save whom God's going to save. But that... You know, it's the word of God who saves, not me. I don't need to tell anybody anything. That would be like the St. Bernard saying, it's the whiskey and the bread, so I don't need to go searching for lost people. Of course you go searching. You're the means that God uses to save people. Of course it's God that saves, not you. I get that. You're not the bread of life. You're the dog, okay? You're the dog. (laughs) And if you're a Christian, you should be a St. Bernard. It's our great and sovereign God who wields the power to save, of course. All we can do is share. Do you guys have liberty tax here? Okay, in L.A., there's this, this tax company called Liberty Tax. They're everywhere. They're franchised out. And you'll see these people on the street corner dressed like the Statue of Liberty twirling the sign. I'm seeing people nodding their heads. So many of you have seen them. They dress like the Statue of Liberty, and it's a million degrees outside, and they're twirling their little Liberty Tax sign under their legs and everything. And... I've always wondered, what, how do you get that job? Like, what happened in life to get you that job? <laughs> and then I made up a story that makes it all make sense. Okay, so pretend you go to Cal State Bakersfield and you're a good student and you major in accounting and tax law, but, you know, you're lazy and you cheat on your tests and you end up graduating with a degree in accounting and a certification in tax law, but you don't actually know anything. You don't even know what an Excel spreadsheet is because you cheated your way through school, all right? 
So what are you going to do with your degree now in accounting with a certification in tax law from Cal State Bakersfield? You go and you apply at Liberty Tax and they hire you. All right, so you show up on the first day and you are terrified. Like, what if they ask me what a, you know, minimum withdrawal is in my IRA for blah, 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 blah. I don't know. I'll, I'll jump out the window. You're probably thinking that. But instead you walk in and they hand you the Statue of Liberty costume. And like, just go stand out there and twirl the sign. You're like, no way. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I can do this. <laughs> And so now you're twirling outside. It's a hurricane weather. You don't care. You're twirling. You're sweating, twirling the sign because you know how to do this. That's the perfect analogy for me for a Christian. You don't need to know all the intricacies of how God saves someone. So much of it is mysterious. You don't need to know how election relates to evangelism and sort that all out in your own mind. So much of that is mysterious. But you do need to know how the Bible says people can be saved. You need to believe what the Bible says. You need to share it with other people. And that sometimes just looks like twirling the sign and saying, Jesus will receive you. Put your faith in him. Put your faith in him. If you do that, you have discharged your responsibility knowing that it is a moral issue. You don't have an opportunity to share the gospel. You have an obligation to. You should have amazing faith that overcomes amazing doubt, letting God's word work through your lips. Remember the logic of the lepers. You know what? If they don't believe you, they don't believe you. It's okay. That's right where they started. But one out of every hundred people you might share the gospel with will believe. That's the kind of odds that motivate us. God, we're grateful for your word. We're thankful for the image of the St. Bernard that you providentially placed in the world. Christians who seek and find and deliver. We know the word, we believe the word, we share the word. I pray that you would use us this week to reach others with the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, don't let a week go by, sidetracked by the Super Bowl, sidetracked by things in the world, politics, the weather, all the things that distract us. Help us zone in on the life-saving news of Jesus Christ. Give us that kind of urgency. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.